Luke chapter 16. Please stand with me as we read this portion together. Luke chapter 16. I, I just, um, I, I, I've said this many times. I'm so grateful that the Lord chose us to be in Luke over this last year. I mean, there's been so many applicable things that he has been sharing with us. Um, and I pray that they're, they're sinking into your heart. More than just hearing something, you get a little bit of knowledge. My prayer is always that God uses his word to transform you within, to do something in you by which you grow and you mature as believers in the Lord. We continue verse one here. Now he was saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting to your management, for you can no longer be manager. And so the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And so he summoned each of his master's debtors and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, well, take your bill, sit down and quickly write 50. And he said to another, how much do you owe? And so he said, a hundred measures of wheat. So he said, well, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. And he who is faithful in little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give, give you that which is not your own? Your, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. You may be seated. Obviously today in our study, Jesus is dealing in this issue of discipleship as it relates to being faithful stewards, faithful managers with what God has given to us and how we ought to make wise, eternal investments with what we have here now. Now, because of a lot of the abuses that have been going on for a number of years in the church with regard to money, you know, we've tried to be sensitive and always appropriate, wanting to honor the Lord, wanting to honor his word without kind of any undue pressures that are given to people or manipulations. But the word of God speaks for itself, what the heart of God is, with regard to these things. 
We are always extremely faithful or grateful for those who are faithful in our fellowship and continue to support the ministry. And I'll tell you, in all the years of our ministry here, God has always supplied. We've never not paid a bill. He's always given us abundance of what we need for whenever. We have never not paid a staff or a, a salary. God has always been faithful, and it's because of faithful people. But there are some times that preachers kind of paint this picture of God, you know, kind of sitting up there in heaven. He's kind of wringing his hands, and he's wondering, what in the world am I going to do if my people don't give? Think about that. They're thinking that about God. You see, the truth is this, God doesn't need our money. He really doesn't. He's the creator, the maker of all things. But he loves us immeasurably. In fact, God doesn't even need us. But he uses us because he loves us. And he offers us this privilege of worshiping him of worshiping with a life that is surrendered and the privilege of worshiping through our giving and investing of our resources and gratitude for what he has given to us. And I pray that really comes home this morning. You see, Jesus had a lot to say about money. He had a lot to say about material wealth because I think he knew the deep spiritual connection that is associated with how people either view or use money. And for sure this morning, he will deal with this. But in context at this point, chronologically, as we've seen, Jesus is now within weeks of when he will make his final ascent up into Jerusalem, where he will ultimately be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, the religious leaders, who will lead him to a false trial that will ultimately lead him to his crucifixion. Jesus knows all these things are going to be happening. So for these past few weeks and months, Jesus and his disciples, they've been ministering the gospel and healing the sick on the east side of the Jordan River in a region which is called Perea. And the popularity of Jesus at this time is extremely high. People have come from all over the regions just to see Jesus, to be with Jesus. As testimony after testimony began to circulate throughout all the regions, Everyone wanted to come see Jesus, but they didn't all come for the same reasons. There were some who came seeking him out because they had genuine need. They were sick, many of them, and many of them were looking for him spiritually. And I think you, many of them come to believe, and I think you would call them the sheep. But as well, you had others who came to be mere spectators. They looked at Jesus from the outside. They observed him, but they never participated with him. I think we could refer to them as the goats. But there is this other group of people who came seeking him out to be his critics and to be his fault finders. They resented his popularity among the people. They resented the fact that Jesus didn't follow after their traditions. They resented the fact that Jesus didn't show, seemed to show any deep appreciation for how high and mighty and spiritual they were. And such is the case as the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, who were, in all accounts, really overseers of the Jews. 
but they had become ever more hostile toward Jesus, resentful of him, and are now looking for a way by which they can plot his death. Now the events and teachings of Jesus between chapters 14 and 17 seem to take place on one particular Sabbath day. It began with Jesus being invited to the home of a prominent Pharisee, a high-ranking Pharisee, who himself was looking for some way to entrap Jesus so that they could use something against him. So among all the invited guests, they had invited a man who was suffering, if you remember, from dropsy, which is a condition of the swelling of your bodily fluids. Uh, We know it as edema, but it indicates serious organ problems, a shutting down perhaps of certain organs that is a very serious condition. And so Jesus, as we saw in that study, he didn't disappoint. You know, he healed the man in the spot, he sent him away, uh, and then he began to deal with the Pharisees, with their man-made traditions, which totally missed the heart of God. And then when we got into chapter 15, it began with the Pharisees and scribes observing and complaining about Jesus' association with known tax collectors and sinners. Not only did he associate with them, he actually ate with them. So in response to that criticism, we saw Jesus offering up three powerful parables. You had the parable of the lost sheep, you had the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. In all these parables, Jesus emphasizes the key point which expresses the joy of the Father in heaven when just one sinner repents and is reconciled to God. Emphasizing the wonderful truth that God sent his son Jesus to save sinners, just like us. And while all these parables were powerful in expressing the gracious heart of the Father and finding those things which are lost, it is the parable of the lost son that only had a strong message that was being sent to the religious leaders. If you remember, the parable tells us of a loving and gracious father who has two sons, both find themselves estranged and at a distance from their father. The younger brother, of course, found himself at a distance due to his own willful, sinful choices by which he took his father's wealth and squandered it all on on self-indulgence and wild living. But the other brother, the older brother, found himself also at a distance from his father while he lived at home. Due to his own inward self-righteous heart that was filled with pride and bitterness and resentment toward his father's graciousness and his forgiveness for his younger brother. Oh, his sin may not have been as overt as his brother's, but it was just as destructive to the heart. That's what self-righteousness is. It's a destructive sin. So in the parable, while both are guilty of sin, we saw it was only the younger brother who had squandered all of his father's inheritance who ultimately confesses, repents, and experiences the joy of of the father in being forgiven. But we saw that it was a story of the older brother's self-righteousness and their pride and then their sinful hearts that best reflected the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes. They were just like the older brother. They were like, they, they were resentful of the father's heart for sinners. 
They were blinded by their own pride and those sins of self-righteousness and those sins of self, and they needed to repent. So I encourage you, if you weren't here for those studies, they ministered to me in a very powerful way, especially as I have to deal with the fact that I have been both. I've been both the younger son who squandered everything and found the grace of father, but I've also been the older brother who gets self-righteous. And I find myself resentful sometimes toward God's mercy toward others and something that he is constantly working in my life and I believe in your lives the same. They're both will leave you far off and away from God. But as we move on here, Jesus now talks of another parable of an unfaithful steward. Notice verse one that he's also saying to the disciples. So he's noticing here that the direction of Jesus is toward the disciples. However, it is in verse 14 that we learn that all the Pharisees were listening. They too, like they're on the outside, they wanna hear what Jesus has to say to his disciples. And so Jesus gives the parable, there's a rich man you had a manager, the manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. He called them and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking a management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I should do so that when I am removed from my management, People will welcome me into their homes. And so he summoned each of his master's debtors and he began saying to them, you know, how much do you owe the master? And the first one said a hundred measures of oil. And he said, well, take your bill quickly, write down 50. He said to you there, how much do you owe? And he said, well, I owe a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to them, well, take your bill and write out 80. And so his master praised this unrighteous servant or manager because he had acted shrewdly. And then he gives us saying that for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than to the sons of light. So the manager we see here, the parable speaks of a wealthy man. He's, a, he's very wealthy. He has a lot of property, a lot of resources. And he has hired for himself a manager, a steward. Someone who manages his property and his money. A steward is someone who serves as a manager of the wealth and property of another to their benefit. Now to serve as a steward of someone else's property and with someone else's wealth was considered a very privileged and honored position. In fact, the most important quality of somebody who's gonna manage your money and to manage your affairs is that they are trustworthy and that they're always working in the master's best interest. But notice in the parable here, the master receives a report informing him that his manager, his steward, has been using his resources recklessly, unfaithfully. He's been squandering them for his own interest rather than for the master's. And so the master calls the steward to give an account of his unfaithful dealings and thus eventually just dismisses him from his position of stewardship. In other words, he's fired. Now, if any of you have ever been fired, I know I have been twice. I'll never forget it. Very humbling experience. And when that person tells you, you no longer have a job, you begin to think about some things very seriously. First of all, how I'm going to tell my spouse. That's one. But the second one is, you know, how am I going to make it? Where 
am I going to go? What, how am I going to pay the bills? How is life going to continue on? And if you've ever been fired, you know exactly what I'm saying here. That becomes your urgency. In the parable, the unfaithful servant does just that. He immediately begins to ponder what his future holds. And he wants to know how he can best make it through. So he has some options. You know, he he realizes he could dig ditches, but his body just can't handle it. We don't know how old he is. He's probably somewhere around my age. His body can't handle it. Can't do it. He sees himself out there begging in the streets, but he says, man, I, I can't do that. I'm too ashamed, too proud to do that. It's kind of beneath him. And so he comes up with this idea, this strategy. He decides that what he needs more than anything else is some good friends. He decides what he needs is to find some way to find favor with those who will, find, who will give him favor in his time of need. You need to understand something that Jews were not allowed to charge interest to other Jews. But they found ways around it. They would increase the value of the trade at a much higher rate, leaving themselves with a healthy profit margin. So the manager immediately goes to his master's debtor and he goes to the first one who owes 100 measures of oil and he cuts his bill in half from 100 down to 50. He goes to another of his master's debtors who owes a hundred measures of wheat, and he cuts it down to 80. Man, that's a 20% savings. And who doesn't like a sweet deal? And so the manager doesn't really profit himself in reducing the the debt. What he does is he uses this principle of reciprocity to gain personal favor with his master's debtors so that they will now be able to bring him in. But notice here, when the master hears what the unrighteous manager had done, he praised him because he had acted shrewdly. Now, this is really interesting. This is where a lot of people really get messed up with this parable. You guys, anybody here confused already? Praising him? Wait a minute, he's praising him? He hasn't done anything. But notice this, he praises him, he commends him, not because he's a dishonest manager, not because he's a crook, but rather because he acted shrewdly in preparing for his future. You see, to be shrewd is to be astute, it's to be brilliant, it's to be clever. And this servant is found shrewd because he is clever enough to realize with his future, he needs to set things in motion to make sure he's got what he needs. He is wise enough to take advantage of his present circumstance in order to set himself up for the future. Proverbs 30, verse 24, for things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Conies are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in their crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in the ranks. And a lizard can be found in the, in, in the hand, yet it gets found also in the king's palace. 
So again, notice here that he is being commended, not because he's such a crook or because he's so faithful, but he's commended because he had enough sense to take what he has now and to do something to align for his future. And then he says, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relationship to their own kind than the sons of the light. Now, when he says the sons of this age, he's talking about this generation and he's speaking of the world. He's talking about unbelievers. He says they're more shrewd and using present opportunities looking to their future than even the children of light are referring to believers. At least the people in the world, he says, are consistent with their own belief system. They invest now for what they think is their future retirement. However, as unbelievers you know, this world, all they will ever have is what they have in this life. That's it. No matter what you have. And that's the key idea here. He says in verse 9, and, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. This is beautiful. Here's the application. Jesus is saying to the disciples, invest your worldly resources now in the present with the anticipation of your eternal rewards that await you in heaven. Invest now what God has entrusted to you for that which will be eternal. Speaking of that, those people and those ministries and those things you support for unbelievers, we know this, that the wealth they possess and they use now is only as good as it is for now in this life. But one day they're going to surrender everything they have. It will fail. I like how he says it here. When it fails, not if it fails, because it fails. Because you can never take it with you. And the time will come when they will have to give an account and they will have nothing, absolutely nothing to show for themselves not even the faith. I mean, I think this is so true when you think about people in this world. It was true for J.D. Rockefeller. Today, this is just as true for Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. The truth is you can't take it with you. You only get to spend it in this life. This is it. What you have is for right now. You can't take it with you without Jesus. You know, you, you stand condemned for judgment, eternal judgment. You know, unbelievers have no promise of heaven. They have no promise of reward after this life. James says in 190, he says, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. It all comes to an end. In other words, the riches of this world are temporal. And those who use it for temporal purposes is all they're going to have is temporal purposes. But that is not the case for the disciple. In the kingdom, we live out our earthly lives investing in what is eternal. Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where the treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
And the truth is we are, all of us are just merely living these temporal lives. I've been thinking a lot about that. I'm really an interim pastor here. I'm the only pastor they've ever had, but I'm only here for a time. We're all just interim. The house you live in, somebody else is going to live in it. Everything you have, you're going to end up giving up at some point. You're going to fail. It's the issue is, what do you have after those things? And in truth, the Bible tells us everything we do have right now has been entrusted to us. It is on loan to us from God just for this season of time in which we can use it in an unrighteous world. Because there's coming a day when all of our earthly money and resources, our possessions will fail us altogether. And when we die, we will have nothing with us but our faith. And those things which are eternal that we invested in. Notice he says here, because that day will come when they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, who are they? Well, it is implied here that they are those friends in heaven who have benefited from your earthly resources here in this temporal life. What is inescapably clear here is that our wealth and our possessions are now to be used to make eternal friends in glory. These are the friends who will welcome us there when we come. And what a, what a wonderful joy you think about that. The pleasure of working and serving and things that are going to last. The master praises the unrighteous manager because he has shrewdly acted and looked toward his eternal future. Like the, like the disciple whose promises eternity should use now our earthly wealth here on earth to invest in eternal things. And here's the principle Jesus says in verse 10. He who is faithful in very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, you have not, you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth. Who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own. There's so much Jesus is really dealing with something really serious here. He's saying those who are faithful with little will be faithful with much and vice versa. If you're not faithful with little, you won't be faithful with much. You know, the faithfulness in which you use a dollar now is going to be the same way you're going to use the thousand dollars. If you don't give out of one, you're not going to give out of a thousand and vice versa, you know, if you can't be trusted with one now, who would ever trust you with a thousand? You see, how we view and use our money and resources in this world has spiritual implications. And Jesus is bringing this out that one day we're all going to give an account for how we've been used these entrusted resources here in this life for what is eternal. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. You know, the things that we invest in now in this life are going to be tested. 
They're going to be proven for what they are. 1 Corinthians 3.12 says, Now if any man builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, and wood, hay and straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on and it remains, he receives a reward, and if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire... So the principle is, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. Well, God has entrusted to you. And it's so sad because sometimes over the years you meet people who think they're doing God a really big favor, you know, when they kind of give them a little extra of what they got left over. Hey, God. Yeah, I know I just spent everything I had on myself, but I got an extra 20. Here you go. Like, like God just like, oh, lucky me. He's never been after the money. He's always been after the heart. Always. Some people just kind of tip God like they would a waiter in a restaurant. And when people have this attitude, it shows a couple of things. It shows they have no understanding of what they've been given or what they've been entrusted with. But it shows, too, they have no understanding of eternity and of the things that really matter, even in this life. Again, I want to emphasize, God has never in the past, never in the present, never in the future, is he ever going to need our money. He created the earth. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. I've watched him supply so many things over the years, supernaturally. Things that did not make any earthly sense. But God supplies for his people. And he allows us the joy of sharing and participating in the eternal kingdom right now while we're in this world with our worldly resources. We use our worldly wealth to invest in eternal treasures. And that principle, listen, it doesn't just apply to your money or your possessions. It could be your time. It could be your talents. What things you invest in. Jesus lays it out here in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. This is what Jesus says here, and it's Jesus saying this. He says, No servant can serve two masters. You're either going to be devoted to one or devoted to the other, but one will ultimately overshadow the other. Now, the thing about money is, and we all know this, is that money in itself is amoral. It's, it doesn't, it's either good or evil. It's a tool. It's how you use it. It's what you do with it that can be used for good or evil. So if you're serving money, that's all you're ever going to have is just money. And if money is serving you, you know, then you're going to invest in eternal things. But you cannot serve both God and wealth. Mammon. I know the TV evangelist says you can. I know he tells you that, listen, you can name it and claim it and blab it and grab it and get anything you want and live high on the hog here. But that is not what Jesus says. 
God blesses his people and he allows us to be stewards with the things we have because he has things that he, can use, that he does with those resources as we worship the Lord. Listen to Jesus. He says, you can't do it because he knows you can't. You cannot serve two masters like that. You cannot live in the spirit while fulfilling your flesh. You just can't. You see, some people think just because they're not rich, they can't be a slave to money or mammon, but you don't have to be rich to be a servant of money. You see, the poor can be just as greedy and covetous as the rich, but how you view your worldly wealth is a deeply spiritual issue. One can have both money and God, but one cannot serve both money and God. A lot of people would say they love God, but their service shows they, they really, money is their thing they're most devoted to. In fact, if you want to test yourself, just ask yourself, what are the things that you offer up greatest sacrifice for? Which are the things that you would give for the sake of your own interest? Or will it be for the sake of Christ and his interest? But anyone who lives their life without giving thought of eternity and accountability lives as a fool. Notice verse 14, now the Pharisees, coming back to them, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. Notice here, the Pharisees heard the whole thing and they scoffed at Jesus just like many in our world are still scoffing at Jesus. Why? Because they were lovers of money and money was their God. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, he says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Listen to what Paul's saying. He says, not money is evil. He is saying it is the love of money that is evil or the root of all evil. And that for the love of money, men will willingly just, uh, rob and kill and steal and lie and murder and divorce, pervert justice, push drugs, alcohol abuse, pornography. They blackmail, betray their friends. They'll do it all for the sake of money. And the principle is this, is that money is a great servant but a very poor master. Money is a great servant, but a poor master. See, the Pharisees are lovers of money. And they used the resources of others for their own pleasure. In other words, they were the takers, not the givers. And all the while demanding honor among the people because of their great spirituality. They were such wonderful spiritual people, they didn't want to defile themselves with those sinners who needed to repent. A lot like one TV evangelist who actually bragged about the fact that the reason he has his own jet is that he cannot just be with common people. After all, he's so special. Man, that's sick. But like the parable of the prodigal, these religious leaders are too proud and too blind to understand the depth 
of their own depravity and twisted hearts. You use your resources now investing in those things which are really valuable to the kingdom because the truth is, people, we get one life. That's it. What we do with it, what we do with it says a lot about what we believe. Martin Luther said, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possess. The only thing you can carry beyond this world is your faith and the investments that you've made in others. That's true. Jesus' point here is not just to give you great tips on earthly management and wise money using. And No, he uses money to get to the heart of the issue of really saying, this is what God is looking for in you the most. It's not so much that you have a lot, but that you use what you've been given for good things, for eternal things. See, this world is filled with financial planners. It's got all the advisors. And it is good for a Christian to learn how to use their money wisely in this world. But when Christians talk about wise money management, sometimes they forget the practice that is most important. And that's investing in those things which are eternal. The thief says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. The selfish man says, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. But the Christian must say, what's mine is a gift from God, I'll share it. Now, if you consider here the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord here finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. That we're half-hearted creatures, that sometimes we just don't really understand the greater things that God has for us. We are far too easily pleased. And as I've said so many times, when I go through the Gospels and I read about the Pharisees, all I know is I don't want to be like them. Because Jesus didn't have a lot of good to say about them. I know I want to be like Jesus. I know I want to have his heart. The Pharisees couldn't be entrusted with small things. They'd never be entrusted with greater things. But the principle of all is this, Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Yeah, God's entrusted resources to us. And we just have the one time we get to use it, whether you have much or you got little. And what you do with that means everything with regard to eternity. And I think that same stewardship there, you look at as stewards of being stewards of the gospel, that God has also committed us the treasure of this gospel by which we share. And it is a treasure. And we pass it on to others. People, it's an issue of the heart. Jesus knew when he talked about money, he was getting right personal where people live because the heart can be so deceived. But when you're grateful for what he's given you and you know he's given you much, you desire to share. Not out of force, 
lot of our people in our country want make you give, not the disciple. The disciple says, I want to give. And at people, don't get me wrong, this is not about giving to Calvary Chapel Southeast. This is about a heart of giving wherever you give. Whatever God puts before you, be stewards, faithful managers, investing in eternal treasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We just thank you, Lord, so much for this time, Father, that you've given to us, the word you've given to us. And Lord, how I do pray, Lord, that we would become faithful stewards, investing, Lord, in the most important things, Lord, with the resources that you've entrusted to us. And God, may we just understand, Lord, your heart and the whole issue is that this is a privilege to worship you. And I pray, God, that you'd speak to our hearts and draw us ever closer to you. May we discover, Lord, even as we see the failing of this world around us, and it is failing. And for some of us, it's the failing of our bodies, Lord. We're knowing that time will be short, perhaps. But may we understand there's something more important than anything, and that's what you have in store for us when we come to see you. And so we thank you this morning for your presence. Teach us, Lord. Enrich us. Help us, Lord, to be those who can be faithful with little and faithful with much. And Lord, that we would be a blessing to your kingdom through worldly resources. We thank you, Jesus. If you're here this morning and you need prayer on anything, we want to invite you to come up and pray. We have people here in the front who really desire just to pray with you, whether it's financial, or maybe today it is. Maybe the Lord's dealing with your heart and you're saying, man, I've been all messed up in my thinking and I got to repent. I got to get things straightened out with God. He loves you. And when he deals with things like this in your life, people, you need to understand he does because he loves you. And because he's allowed us this wonderful privilege of being his children, given this short season of time right here in this earth, which have implications for all eternity. If you're sick this morning and need physical prayer, they're here to pray with you and if you have relationship issues, maybe your husband and wife, and you want somebody to pray with you, say, we're going through a tough time. We need, we need prayer. Let God minister to you this morning.